the Bible reading is from uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. It'll be up on the screen behind me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, uh, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known that on this day what would bring you peace, uh, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, if you've got your Bible, make sure it's open, get the outline on the hub if you need it. Today, we're going to look at the portrait of a king. Portrait of a king. What's a fitting portrait of a king? How, how would you describe a king? If you're like my kids, then this is how they would describe a king. This week I asked them, what's a king? They said, crown, sword, horse, army, fighting, powerful, strong, all that. And so that is, for them, a king. However, I'm sure when I say the word king in Australia, in Adelaide, in 2021, our Western democracy is so far removed from a king, you probably think of White King, or Elvis the King, or the King of Animals, a lion, or even if you are into chess, the, the king of a chess set. Kings are not common today. Or maybe you think of the crown. Speaking of the crown, actually, um, intriguing show. It's a documentary with lots of um, uh, um, fiction thrown in there for fun um, about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And in that, at the beginning of her reign, um, she has a question from the Queen Mother. I think it is the Queen Mother at the time says, um, oh, you don't do anything as the Queen. A bit more dramatic than that, but essentially she's saying a queen, a monarchy doesn't do anything. They sit there, they need to be mysterious, and you can't have an opinion, you can't do anything, because if you do something, then the mystery's lost, and you're now, you've taken a side. So you cannot take a side, you have to sit back a little bit aloof from the rest of the world as the queen, as the monarchy, because that's what we do. Interesting idea, isn't it? That the best thing a queen can do, or a king, or a monarchy, 
that we've got in our part of the country anyway. The best thing they can do is to sit removed from society, do nothing, have some photos, make the press intrigued for a little bit for some headlines and maybe go to a charity event. That's what they do. Let the people run themselves, essentially. Is that a fitting portrait of a king, queen, monarchy, ruler? Is, is, that, is that right? As we've looked at today, today already, and we've sung, and Damien's reminded us, and the kids' talk showed us too, Christians say, we have a king. More though, we claim that Jesus is the king. Is Jesus a king like Queen Elizabeth II? Just letting the world run on its own, sitting a bit aloof, hoping that we get it right, not wanting to get too involved, because there's mystery in him not being around. Well, uh, no, because that would be deism. There is a God, but he's too far removed and distant that really he's no help and not very close at all. So maybe the view of a king is like secularism, when there really is no God, and um, like the monarchy, it's a bit old-fashioned, not relevant, not required for life, but just a nice thing to have if you need it. What I want to show today is what if there was a king who was divine and transcendent, but also close, who both rules black holes to the tiny crabs we saw at Moonta this summer on holidays, a king who did come close to us, who's intimately involved in our world and our life and with his people, ready to reign over all those in his kingdom who are welcome to come in, but grieve to tears at the same time that some may reject him and the peace that this king brings. In Luke 19, our passage today from 28 to 40, 44, we have what I've called the portrait of a king. And the big idea that I want to claim today, and that hopefully you can see as well when we look at it, is that Jesus is the true king of peace. Jesus is the true king of peace. He came to be praised as a king who brings peace. As we saw in the passage, though, not all acknowledge this or do. And this moves Jesus to tears, in fact, because he knows that to miss him, to miss the time of his reign and the peace that he brings, is to miss belonging to him and part of his kingdom that goes on forever. So come with me and, and see, is this what this passage teaches? Is that true? I have three, three parts to that. Firstly is the posture of a king, then the heart of the king, and what does it mean to be people of the king? So we see the posture of the king, the heart of the king, and what it means to be people of the king. It's early AD 30 at this point in Jesus' life, and he's preparing to make his entrance into Jerusalem before Easter. Question is, how is King Jesus going to come into Jerusalem? How is he going to make his approach? And as we'll see in a moment, it's totally peaceful. It's dripping with Old Testament history and royal overtones. This is not just Jesus decides, gets a bit tired from walking for a few days and says, I need to sit on a donkey so I can go into Jerusalem. This is someone who's intimately involved with his world and knows all the Old Testament predictions, prophecies. It shows continuity with what's gone before and fulfillment that this is happening in him. And so today I'm going to mention each of the Old Testament verses as we go along through this passage so you can see this. Jesus is not just plucked out of nowhere, stuck on earth, and says, be nice to each other because I'm God's son. He's the fulfillment of a long-anticipated line of God's redemptive, 
purpose for our world and for you and me, coming to fulfill it all. And the point is that you can't mistake Jesus as not being king here. It just doesn't look as what you'd imagine it to be. So verse 28, it says, He went on to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethany and Bethpage at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is where the king would come from. Zechariah 14, 1-10 talks about the Mount of Olives being the place where a king would one day come down from. Reigning over the whole earth. And Jesus stops here almost to take a breath. Perhaps he knows this, this verse, as he sits there and goes, wow, I'm going to do it. But again, it's not, he's not tired and needs a donkey to ride on. He deliberately sends two disciples into the town just around the corner, go and get a donkey that I already know is there, untie it, bring it back, because he wants to make a point again. Have a listen. He says, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say the Lord needs it. They went ahead and found it, and as they were untying it, the owner said, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord needs it. Love that. And they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the donkey and put Jesus on it. And as Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. As I've said, what's the point he's making? The donkey points us, first of all, back to kings of the past, legendary kings like David and Solomon, who also rode on donkeys. It pulls on Zechariah 9 verse 9, actually, which says, Rejoice, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see... Your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. Verse 10 of Zechariah 9 says, He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to the sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And there's Jesus, casually plodding down from the Mount of Olives. All of this is to say, louder than words, God is returning to Jerusalem, to become king over all the nations. Just think about it. There's no chariot or Rolls Royce. It's a donkey. He's not ready for battle in raw power. There's humility and gentleness. There's not a throne. There's just coats and cloaks. He's not sitting far away from his creation. He knows exactly what's taking place. He said, go and get the donkey that's already there. Here's what you're going to say. Here's what they're going to say. You're going to bring it back. I know Zechariah. He's directing everything to the exact purpose that God intends. Jesus is not surprised. He's organizing it on his own agenda as only a king can. It's a great paradox. The king who rides on a donkey, who wears a crown of thorns, is dressed in someone else's robes, reigns from a cross and rules from on high. The point is that this is a portrait of a king who's coming in peace. It's not so much a humble person on a donkey, it's a peaceful king coming. And that's praiseworthy. The entrance Jesus makes is praiseworthy. Interesting that that honouring God has become very out of date today. And it's very understandable. It's a bit hard to be in awe of the God you don't believe in. But here we meet a group of people that want to believe. Who look at Jesus and suddenly something clicks. It falls into place because it says... They think about the miracles they've seen. For three years, they've seen the miracles and they're filled with such joy and gladness. They praise God loudly. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. 
They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The miracles are the reason for praise. They're not feeling good. They're not having a spiritually high moment here. There's concrete evidence they've seen day in and day out for three years of Jesus' life. And they're saying, that is the reason why he is the king. I get it. I see it. They want him as the king. And that's always what praise is about. Little wonder why Psalm 118 is quoted, verse 26, in that part. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quote that verse. They don't just see a man on a donkey heading for a festival in the capital city. It's dawned on them. Jesus is none other than God coming to them as a king to rule over them, to rule with peace. They pick that up. It's, it's like what the angel said at Jesus' birth, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those in whom his favor rests. See, Jesus comes to bring peace. God and humanity is reconciled through the king. That's the peace that King Jesus comes to bring. But, like with most things Jesus seems to do, there's a few people sitting at the back that get upset with this. And as usual, it's the Pharisees. And as usual, they just misunderstand what's going on completely. Have a look at verse 39. The Pharisees and the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And just so casually, Jesus says, oh, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's the climax of misunderstanding. This is, in fact, the last account we have of the Pharisees and Jesus talking in Luke's gospel before the crucifixion comes. To them, it's just, it's, it's blasphemy, it's, it's ridiculous. You don't say, blessed is the king. You don't talk about a man as God. They just can't comprehend that. But Jesus he doesn't rebuke them, does he? He doesn't say, oh, good point, Pharisees. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear that in the noise. and the... I should tell them to be quiet. He goes the other way, doesn't he? And he says, oh, actually, if they don't say it, creation will. It's true. Creation itself, as we heard in the kids' talk today, creation knew something was going on here in this moment. Something big was happening. Creation has sided with Jesus in that moment. It's ironic that the Pharisees, they're human, flesh and blood. They don't get it, but an inanimate object, like a rock. Jesus says it gets what's going on. It knows what's happening. Creation will praise Jesus as king over it. This is a great joyful moment for the crowd, confusion for the Pharisees. Jesus corrects their misunderstanding and says, actually, it's bigger than just the crowd. Actually, it's all of creation's joining in to praise me as the king. But as Jesus gets closer and closer, the joy that he feels gets less and less. His posture as a king, he's humble, he's coming in peace. Yet the very city he's going into haven't synced their diaries yet with Jesus. And it breaks his heart. This is the heart of the king in the last few verses from 41. He looks at the city. He's overcome with grief and sadness at what he sees. It says he's weeping. It's this intense heaving of the chest. You see exactly the same word in uh, Peter when he denies Jesus and ran out weeping. It's not just a, uh, I feel a bit upset, got a tear, I'll be fine. This is an intense grief. Have a listen to what Jesus says. He approached the city, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, 
had known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you, hem you in on every side. Verse 44, they'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on the other because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Is Jesus crying because he's angry? No. He loves the people. He loves this city. How does he feel about the rejection of him when, re- when they don't hear or see him coming? Does it, he, oh good, I'll crush you. No, he's the king. He, he's about to be crushed for them. I'm going to be crushed for you and they can't see it. And if they don't see it, they will be crushed as well. Notice the words, this day will bring you peace. You do not recognize the time of God's coming. The point Jesus is making is that it came to bring peace according to God's agenda and God's time, and they've missed it. The destruction sayings echo the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 30 and 32. If you're unfaithful to God in the Old Testament, the covenant's broken. And we saw that with Assyria and Babylon once invaded rebellious Jerusalem, Judea, and Israel and sent them off as slaves for their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. And so, Jesus says, it's going to happen again. And in AD 70, we see this taking place, only a few years after this. The point is that Jesus is filled with grief and sadness at the thought that some would reject him as king. Ezekiel 33, 11 God is speaking and he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather they turn from their evil ways, from their ways and live. Turn, turn from their evil ways, he says. Why don't they recognize the time? Why don't they see Jesus with all the Old Testament references just dripping, hanging on him? Why do they not see it? What are they missing? They've misunderstood the nature of how Jesus will reign. It's today. Our world is not expecting Jesus either. Day-to-day life, people are not in sync with God. They're living in a different universe, in fact, not just a different city. Jesus is of no relevance. And more and more, the idea that you would read the Bible, follow the God of that Bible, well, that's just an oppressive, cruel, and hateful thing to do. But can you say there isn't Jesus here at all? This is a portrait of a peaceful king. One who's humble, one who's divine and sovereign, knowing all how it's going to play out, yet weeps at the coming disaster of this city that's going to reject him. This is the king we need in our world. An active king. And as I think about Jesus here, and I think... Getting my head around this idea of a king is not easy in Adelaide. But what is my response to this Jesus, to this claim that he is the king of peace? What does that mean for my own friends and family, in my own little universe that I live in day to day, when there are people who are unaware that there is a king like Jesus? And so as people of the king, I have three three things I think we can see that I want to finish on, that I find, I found challenging this week as I thought more about what it means that Jesus is king. 
Firstly is this joyful praise, as the disciples did, as the crowds did. We too should rejoice that God has sent us the King and opened our eyes that we can have peace with Him. Verse 37 is this great attitude of praising Jesus for what He has done, the evidence, the miracles, the concreteness of the Jesus we see in the Bible. We praise Him for that. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 15, Paul says again and again, praise be to God for what Jesus has done. Praise be to God for what Jesus has done. Praise be to God for what Jesus has done. That is how we live. Joyfully praising our King, a different attitude towards the monarchy of our life, not just a passive, I'm intrigued because they're in the newspaper or they're doing an interview with Oprah. It's not like that for us. But part of that, part of this, I think, is also having a joyful praise, but ready to serve. Verse 1, it says, Jesus went ahead, he's going to the path of the cross. He may, he will, ask us things at times as well. Notice the, the donkey incident. Just say the Lord needs it. And we have no, uh, no, expo- no, no reaction from the man other than he let the donkey go. Would you live under the king with a view of everything you own, the time, your mind, your heart? Does the Lord need this? Does the Lord need it? And then when he asks, I will gladly give it up. Having the same attitude that Jesus did of humility here. Can you say, here I am, Lord, ready to serve you, joyfully praising whatever it may be, ready to serve you with? as a people of the king. And part of that, part of serving him, part of, of, of joyfully praising our king is also ready to use the things we have to have the same heart that Jesus has, and that's weeping over the lost. Look at verse 41. We saw that he approached Jerusalem and he wept over it. You know, this is a, a, a compassion for those not running on God's agenda. I haven't yet recognized a time of God's coming in Jesus. And that heart, those tears, can only come from Jesus himself. I mean, would you pray that the eyes of your friends and family and co-workers, that, that we wouldn't stay outside the city where they live, we go into their place like Jesus does, and gladly, joyfully go into their school and play sport and go to Tupperware parties and have barbecues and, and go places where they are, where our friends live, Tomorrow, in fact, on the public holiday Monday, I don't know what your plans are, we're going to the Pirate Life Brewery with some friends who don't yet know the timing of Jesus is here and we want to go into their space so that they can come into our space and hear the claims of Jesus more fully. And it grieves me that these people I love and have known for many, many years still do not recognize the timing of God's coming to them in Jesus. So the question is, what does a king look like? Is this a fitting portrait of Jesus, as we saw? Or is he just like Queen Elizabeth II in the crown, intentionally mysterious, intentionally distant? And what if Luke here is painting a different picture? He's coming in peace. He's coming humbly, with foreknowledge of everything, surrounded by praise, often misunderstood, of course, yet weeping over the lost, and ready to reign from a cross. The question is, what do you think of this King Jesus? Is he your king? I do pray that he is. Today, as you have coffee and morning tea in a few minutes, why not, why not mention how, how have you been encouraged this morning?
to live as a follower of King Jesus. Why not share that with someone as you're grabbing coffee and, and some fresh biscuits this week? Why not say, here's how Jesus has encouraged me. Here's what it means to live as part of the King. Let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not as a distant, faraway God, but actually as a God who came close, one of us, in your Son, yet King. And as we've seen today, a ridiculously different picture of a king, someone who's intimately involved, who comes to bring peace, who's misunderstood, who's, who's worthy of praise from creation and our own mouths and hearts, yet weeps over those who do not yet know you as king. And so God, give us a heart for the lost, but also a joyful attitude of praise that you have saved us and you're our king. And so God, we give our hearts and our minds to you this week. Once more, may you rule and reign over us. May it be our joy to sit at your feet and say, here I am, ready to serve you. Thank you for all the grace you supply, for all the mercy that you're full of, and all the kindness that you give, because you are kind, God. Amen.